Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. <clears throat> and today, as the first Friday of the month, we had Cookie Learn. So just before starting Medical Grand Rounds, I want to award a prize to someone who entered the quiz and answered, picked by random, answered an appropriate response to the question today, which was pick a couple of proteins that are good for you, uh, what ones could you eat in moderation, and how would you get more of the healthy proteins into your diet. There was credit for that uh, if you went to Cookie Learn and learned something there. So the answer, picked at random but nameless, so you'll have to identify yourself, was <laughs> healthy proteins considering beans, leguminous uh, uh, beans and nuts, eat in moderation meat, cheese, dairy products, eggs, how would you get them more into your weekly diet, meatless Mondays at home, substituting other things, and making your own trail mix to last the week? All good ideas. Kaylee, was that yours? <laughs> Kaylee. Oh, my gosh. So here it is. Wonderful. All right. Well done, Kaylee. And what you get, Kaylee, is a uh, helping bowl, and inside our I think chia seeds, so there you go. Thank you. Well done. Thank you. Nicely done. That was not rigged that way. I can just tell you then. Um, let me introduce, we'll introduce our speaker today, uh, Karen McLean from Michigan. And Kaylee was also from Michigan. She went to Grand Valley State University and then came to the Geisel School of Medicine to do an MD-PhD. She's had experience here uh, in the PhD students working with Drs. Kettenbach and Gerber, and now focusing on working with Dr. Uh, Kettenbach. Her interests are in substrate and functional analysis of protein phosph uh, phosphatases, and she's published in areas of inhibition of acinetobacter-derived cephalosporinase. She is a rising scientist and will be an amazing clinician as well, and we welcome Kaylee here to introduce our speaker today. There are no conflicts of interest associated with the talk today. Good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Kaylee. Thank you, Dr. Rothstein, for the introduction. I'm a second-year MD-PhD student here at Dartmouth. Um, and every year, the MD-PhD program nominates a speaker for the Medicine Grand Rounds, and it's my pleasure to introduce this year's nominated speaker, Dr. Karen McLean. Dr. McLean joins us this morning from Ann Arbor, Michigan, where she grew up and completed her MD-PhD at the University of Michigan. She's a gynecologic oncologist at the Rogel Cancer Center at U of M, where she performs surgery and administers chemotherapy to women with gynecologic cancers. When she's not in the clinic, she's busy running a research lab. Dr. McLean believes translational research is essential to improving cancer outcomes. Her lab is focused on studying ovarian cancer with the goal of identifying novel therapeutics. So we're very excited to hear more about this work. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Karen McLean. Okay, I hope I have all the wiring set. I'd like to thank Dr. Rothstein, all of you, and Kaylee. And it's a pleasure to be here. I've actually never been uh, to Dartmouth before, and it's exciting to see really a beautiful area. <coughs> Excuse me. Oh, let me grab my water. So as I was uh, preparing for the talk today, I um, 
was really flattered to be invited by the MD-PhD students and uh, went back to look at what were printed out paper uh, pictures that I then scanned in of my life as a PhD student when I was uh, working. And so it both seems like yesterday and many, many years ago that I was in the lab doing my own PhD, uh, almost 20 years ago now. And um, that's me just before I defended, actually, on the right. And then the lower left is my graduating class at our brunch before, um, f after we finished med school. And obviously, that's me in the middle with the green skirt. I would overall describe my current career as a pretty traditional MDPhD career. Um, I am a gynecologic oncologist at Michigan. We do both the surgery side and the chemotherapy side. And then I run a basic science laboratory. My split is about 50-50. And um, I really enjoy that balance and the, the mix of the long-term, as I see it, with research and the short-term of clinical care. So I'd like to talk to you today about this interplay between basic science research and uh, clinical care. And I think we're really undergoing a huge transformation in ovarian cancer in that regard. So I'm going to talk some about ovarian cancer as a clinical disease and the underlying biology of ovarian cancer that we're understanding more and more with specifically the importance of DNA damage repair. Based on this understanding of cancer biology, we now have a new class of drugs called PARP inhibitors, and I'm going to talk about their rationale and clinical use, and then trans, uh, transfer over to some work that I'm doing in my own laboratory looking at the inhibition of alternative DNA damage repair pathways and the interplay between DNA damage repair and immunotherapy. So first is a context. We really have three broad types of ovarian cancer. The epithelial ovarian cancers, the germ cell tumors, and sex cord stromal tumors. Epithelial ovarian cancer is by far the most common, and within that, the most common subtype is the serous or papillary serous histologies. And so when I talk about ovarian cancer today, I'm really talking about epithelial ovarian cancer specifically and not the other subtypes. One of the things I'd like to really make a point about today is that ovarian cancer actually probably does not arise from the ovaries. As we learn more and more about uh, serous ovarian cancer, it is likely that it arises from the fallopian tubes instead. And so we are undergoing a transformation in the nomenclature from calling it ovarian cancer to calling it high-grade serous carcinoma, meaning serous cancers that are arising from the fallopian tube or the ovary or the peritoneum. The way we came to this understanding through pathology work, a lot of it led by Ronnie Drapkin, uh, here's my mouse, is that we see the very earliest genetic changes associated with serous cancers in the fallopian tubes when there is p53 mutation. These are called serous tubal intraepithelial lesions, then intraepithelial carcinomas, ultimately transforming over an invasive disease. So ovarian cancer really means high-grade serous cancer, which can arise from any of these sites. <coughs> Overall, high-grade serous cancer is the fifth leading cause of cancer-related deaths in women in the United States. It's about 14,000 deaths a year. And when I think about the numbers for this cancer type, I think 70 is the number to remember, about 1 in 70 women. 70% 70 have advanced stage disease at diagnosis, and about 70% have disease relapse. This graph in the middle bottom is showing new cases and deaths since the early 1990s. And what we can see is we're making modest uh, improvements, but... Unfortunately, they're still modest. Five-year survival is still less than 50%. This is both due to the, re, uh, the development of resistance to our current treatments as well as late stage of disease at diagnosis. 
And considering the audience today and some of the take-home points I'd like you to know, I think one of the big ones is you're in your own clinical practice is to say that ovarian cancer is not a silent killer. It used to have this name, ovarian cancer is a silent killer. There are no symptoms. Patients progress, uh, present with terrible disease. That's really not the case. It's just that we need to do better at recognizing the uh, symptoms. So even with early-stage disease, almost 90% of patients have symptoms, but they're most commonly gastrointestinal symptoms. Bloating, change in bowel habits, distension. It's unfortunately not an uncommon story that a perimenopausal woman, 50, 55, will come in. She says, she doesn't feel quite right. I just think I'm going through menopause. My clothes don't fit like they used to. And that really it's ovarian cancer. That's the underlying problem. And so we all need to kind of increase our threshold of awareness for disease uh, symptoms. Fortunately, there's a lot of effort uh, in the lay public to get this education out there. This is an example of a portion of a brochure from our Michigan Ovarian Cancer Alliance. This is outreach efforts they're doing to patients, primary care providers, to know the symptoms of ovarian cancer and situations in which someone should uh, seek care or at least seek evaluation. If we think broadly about treatment for ovarian cancer, uh, almost everyone gets both surgery and chemotherapy. It depends on the specific patient and their presentation, the sequence of these uh, two modalities, but it's the rare patient that only has surgery. Chemotherapy consists of both a platinum and a taxane-based uh, regimen, and now we're transitioning to using what we call maintenance therapy more often, which is after their upfront treatment, they stay on some, sort of, some form of medication to decrease the chance of the, or delay the cancer from coming back. And then if a patient, or when they develop recurrent disease, they generally go back on chemotherapy. So I would describe there being really two significant paradigm shifts in ovarian cancer. The first is this whole topic of it being high-grade serous cancer that's actually arising from multiple sites. And the second is that at the core, it's really DNA damage repair defects that underlie the disease of ovarian cancer. So this is a, a figure of copy number alterations on the y-axis and a panel of different cancer types along the x-axis. Ovarian cancer is in red. And what we can see is that ovarian cancer has a pretty high relative uh, frequency of copy number alterations uh, compared to these other tumor types. And as we are learning, this is because of the specific DNA damage repair defects that allow different chunks of DNA to get rearranged from place to another because of the efforts of the cells to try and fix the DNA but have trouble doing so. And so I really believe that at the core, our understanding of this tumor biology is revolutionizing treatment advances. And I'm going to show you some examples of how this biology understanding and the transfer from the lab to the clinical setting is changing the treatments for ovarian cancer. Many of us are familiar with the idea of hereditary breast and ovarian cancer, that there are germline mutations that women inherit that increase their risk of developing both breast and ovarian cancer. Specifically, the most common ones are BRCA1 and BRCA2. For ovarian cancer itself, BRCA1 is the more common mutation and BRCA2 less common. But we actually also see there's a whole spectrum of additional mutations that are seen with lower frequency, as shown here. And what's important to state is that these are all also genes that function in DNA damage repair. BRCA1 and BRCA2 function in homologous recombination, as well as this whole set of uh, genes. There's the whole Fanconi anemia group of DNA damage repair genes. So this is really supporting the idea that 
something about DNA damage repair is causing an increased likelihood of cancer. Because of this, uh, there is now the um, opinion that every woman who has an ovarian cancer diagnosis, even if they don't have a family history of ovarian cancer, should undergo genetic testing to see if they have a hereditary component to their cancer disease. So if you have someone who you're following in clinic who is in remission from their cancer, now it's recommended that they actually still see a genetic counselor and undergo testing, even if their family history screening is totally negative. This is an example of one type of panel testing that's available. And you can see there's actually a large number of genes that get tested now. The high-risk genes like BRCA1 and BRCA2, moderate-risk genes and uh, genes that we don't really know what their risk is yet. Uh, my point in putting this here is to also say that I actually never order these tests myself either because it's too complicated even already. And um, we want to make sure that patients are getting the right genes tested as we develop new genes and new risk factors that there's then the opportunity for them to get rescreened as well. So we know about the hereditary tumor types, and one of the big findings was that actually if you have a BRCA mutation, your outcomes with regard to ovarian cancer are better. So this is a pooled analysis of many patients from many trials who have either BRCA1 or 2 mutation or no mutation. In general, with hereditary cancer syndromes, they get their cancers earlier, but despite that, they actually do better as far as outcomes, and it's a little bit counterintuitive. So this is a Kaplan-Meier survival curve. We'll see more of them as the talk goes on. On the x-axis is time interval, years from diagnosis here, and on the y-axis, perception of patients surviving. And as you can see, the BRCA1 and BRCA2 germline mutation carriers actually do better than those patients that don't have a germline mutation. So this led to the question of why. Why, if they have this increased propensity for DNA damage, why would they actually do better instead of doing worse? And at the core of it is this role of DNA damage repair. So our platinum-based chemotherapies, carboplatin, work by targeting the DNA and causing DNA cross-linking and double-strand breaks. In a normal cell, these strand breaks can be repaired by a process called homologous recombination. So the chemotherapy causes damage, but the cell can then fix it, and the cancer cell continues to live. In contrast, in the setting of a BRCA mutation, this homologous recombination DNA pathway is defective, and the cell can't repair the damage that's caused by the platinum therapy. So now, instead of a cell surviving and growing, we induce cancer cell death. <laughs> so this is great for the patients who have a BRCA mutation germline, but a real shift has been in the finding that in patients who have sporadic cancers, they didn't inherit the risk factors from their family, they also have these mutations in their cancer, and therefore they also have the potential to respond to certain strategies that are going to attack the DNA damage repair pathways. So although the distribution is a little bit different in the somatic mutation group, we still see that BRCA1 mutations are the most common sp uh, sporadic somatic mutations, BRCA2, and then a number of other genes that, again, still function in DNA damage repair pathways. This suggests that strategies targeting DNA damage repair may benefit all patients, not just those with hereditary cancers. <clears throat> so this is just to highlight... Um, the DNA damage repair pathways and say that homologous recombination repair, which is the second one in, fixed DNA double strand breaks, another similar pathway called non-homologous end joining that also functions in double strand break repair. And as you can see at the top here, our platinum-based drugs uh, 
trigger DNA damage that is repaired by those pathways. So if we put all of this information together, we would really say that at the core homologous recombination defects are the underlying pathology of ovarian cancer or high-grade serous cancer. At the right are the genetic alterations, either germline or somatic, that we know cause HR deficiency, as well as other processes that are epigenetic, like in the middle here on the right, uh, hypermethylation of the BRCA1 promoter to turn off BRCA1, other uh, Fanconi anemia genes. And then we still don't understand exactly what makes this part of the pie up on the left, uh, but other epigenetic and microRNA changes that likely cause defects in homologous recombination. This bottom left corner, the um, patients who have HR-proficient tumors, interestingly, these folks with cyclin E1 amplification are actually the patients who do the worst, and it is probably because we don't have the benefit of being able to exploit these homologous recombination deficiencies. So this brings us to kind of our first huge shift in ovarian cancer treatment, which is the introduction of PARP inhibitors. So PARP is a uh, protein that functions in DNA damage repair of single-strand breaks, and that's what's shown on the left here. And uh, there have been a, a flux of more and more PARP inhibitors, and basically what I tell the students is all of them end in the parib, alaparib, recaparib, niraparib. These are all of our PARP inhibitor therapies. And I'm going to explain why these are beneficial in the treatment of ovarian cancer. It gets back to the same idea that we saw about BRCA1 mutation. So now we're adding one more layer to the top here. Normally, when a cell gets a single-strand break, PARP fixes it. If PARP isn't around to fix that single-strand break, we get a double-strand break that normally can be repaired by homologous recombination in the lower left. But if we have... Uh, defects in homologous recombination, whether it be our BRCA mutation or another pathway, the cell can't repair itself and it undergoes cell death. We call this process synthetic lethality from the old genetic term, in which there are two different events that are together causing uh, cell death, one being the PARP inhibitor and the second, the defective homologous recombination. So um, the point of this slide is to say that every medicine that gets to clinical trial started in the preclinical realm. And I think as an MD-PhD student who's slaving away in your lab doing your uh, PhD, sometimes you feel like a million miles away from patient care. And these two papers came out in the early uh, 2000s showing that in uh, cells in the lab that have BRCA2 deficiency, if you treat them with PARP inhibitors, then you can get cell death. And so this was some of the really critical preclinical data that then transitioned things over to clinical work. So now we have, in the last 10 years, a real explosion of clinical trials looking at the application of PARP inhibitors. They include a multitude of clinical settings. In ovarian cancer, we describe patients as either being platinum sensitive if it's been more than six months since they completed therapy or platinum resistant if it's less than six months. And then maintenance therapy, like I mentioned, after they're undergoing their cytotoxic chemo, staying on a medicine after. There are trials looking at patients with BRCA mutations and without BRCA mutations with or without chemotherapy, and with or without other targeted therapies. So the first study 
that came out is the use of alaparib maintenance therapy in the platinum-sensitive uh, relapsed ovarian cancer setting. One of the things I'd like to highlight is that this was published in 2012 and uh, really not that long ago. And so these are patients who've had recurrence of their disease multiple times. Each time it's, less, it's sorry, more than six months apart. They go back on a platinum-based treatment, and then when they finish that, they go on the PARP inhibitor after. So that's the maintenance setting. And again, a survival curve. It's worth highlighting, and it uh, shows kind of the challenges of ovarian cancer. Now our x-axis with regard to the time interval, we've shifted. We've gone from years to months as far as the outcomes from these patients. And then on the y-axis, again, probability of survival. And what we see is the patients that went on this maintenance therapy with Olaparib have better progression-free survival. So the time until their cancer comes back is extended by taking this medicine. Some of the details as far as that progression-free survival are at the bottom. The results are most significant in patients who do have a BRCA mutation. Progression-free survival shifted from four months to 11 months. But interestingly, even in those patients who don't have a germline mutation, we see some improvement in progression-free survival. One of the big challenges we have in ovarian cancer overall is the search for treatments that improve overall survival, and that is not shown in this study and continues to be a challenge in our efforts to improve care. So based on that study, then the next PARP inhibitor comes out, niraparib, overall a similar clinical setting as far as uh, recurrent platinum-sensitive disease. But now they're starting to look in a little more detail at the underlying genetics of the patients who are getting treated. So again, germline BRCA mutations, we see the best response. HRD is homologous recombination deficiency, so any sort of evidence that they have a defect in that DNA damage repair pathway, those patients also respond. And then even patients who don't have either of those scenarios, there is some improvement with PARP inhibitor therapy. And this is, again, just showing survival curves. Um, worth highlighting, uh, the left is, again, progression-free survival, not overall survival. And this was just published a few years ago. So now we're saying that taking a PARP inhibitor after you're on chemo for recurrent disease is beneficial. What about taking a PARP inhibitor right after you finish your upfront therapy? And that has just, been, uh, just come out in December of this past year, so four months ago. Uh, maintenance laparib in patients with newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer. So they have their surgery, they have their chemo, they go straight on to a PARP inhibitor after that. <clears throat> and what we see is, again, that there is an extension of progression-free survival. Uh, we don't yet have the overall survival data, and this also brings to mind the topic of the side effect profile of these medications. There will be actually a small subset of patients, even those with advanced-stage disease, who are actually cured with upfront chemotherapy alone. So we have to think, should we put them on this medicine? Now we're talking years of medicine um, in a patient who maybe actually is already cured of their disease. So we have seen an explosion of PARP inhibitors that are approved in the ovarian cancer setting. This is where we stand today, and I think it also highlights kind of the sequence of understanding about the genetics of the disease. So when they first came out, it was just specifically patients with germline BRCA mutations. Then we learned, oh, actually, patients who have somatic mutations in their cancer also benefit from PARP inhibitors. And then we extended it to actually maybe all patients have some problem with DNA damage repair and would benefit from PARP inhibitors. And now we're shifting maybe from treatment and maintenance therapy to this new strategy of right after the upfront therapy. 
At this time, this is only in the patients with BRCA mutations, but we can imagine this list is going to keep getting longer and longer of indications for PARP inhibitors. But like I said, I think we have to be a little bit cautious because they are not without side effects. And we are prescribing these medications with no defined interval. We're saying take them indefinitely until your cancer comes back again. And so they're living with these side effects indefinitely. Fatigue, nausea, and anemia are the most common. Diarrhea, taste symptoms. And then the, I think the thing that gives all of us particular caution is these rare, rare serious side effects. Pneumonitis we see in less than 1% of patients. And then because we're affecting this uh, ability of all the cells to undergo DNA damage repair, they have a low but real risk of developing a secondary malignancy, myelodysplastic syndrome or AML. And so we have to really be cautious about um, whether those risks are worth it in these patients. That brings, brings us to the big question. When should we use these medicines? And I think overall, we still don't know the answer. We have many trials that are in, prox, in progress. We have to consider the side effect profile. At the moment, they're only uh, approved for certain clinical scenarios, and we only use those uh, FDA-approved situations. And then finally, cost. And I don't think we can make any clinical decision these days without the factor of cost, which is about $13,000 a month for these patients to be on this medicine. Again, with the comment, it's an indefinite cost. We're not saying six months. We're saying until your disease progresses. <coughs> so even though I think there's a lot encouraging about PARP inhibitors, um, just like patients develop resistance to chemotherapy, patients actually develop resistance to PARP inhibitor therapy. And so uh, there is now the expansion, let's not just give them a PARP, let's give them a PARP inhibitor plus something else to try and delay the development of resistance. And there are lots of strategies uh, under clinical trial right now looking at um, the combination with other therapies. And one of the exciting areas is the combination of PARP inhibitors and immunotherapy. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. And again, with this point of how does the science suggest that this is a rational combination to use in the treatment setting? So just one schematic about what we're talking about with immunotherapy. Uh, on the top here is the immune cell, the tumor-specific T cell, and the bottom, the tumor cell. And there are these pairings of uh, proteins on each side. Uh, the two that are best known, PD-1 on the T cell and PDL one on the tumor cell, and then also on the T cell, CTLA-4. And so these interactions function to kind of dampen the immune response and to control the immune response. And what we see is if we treat tumors, speaking broadly, not specifically about ovarian cancer, with what we call immune checkpoint blockade pro, uh, proteins, which are generally antibodies. Like on the left here, anti-PD-1 antibody. So we block this signal. We actually improve immune response to the therapy. We know in ovarian cancer, if there are more immune cells in the tumor itself, then the responses to therapy are better. In ovarian cancer, immunotherapy has not been a very successful treatment. This is a figure that many folks are familiar with if they're in the cancer world. It's looking at different cancer types along the x-axis and the somatic mutation frequency. How many mutations do they have on their genes? Worth noting, this is a log scale. So if we're up here at 10, we're already 10-fold more mutations. Here, 100-fold more mutations. At the very, very far right is melanoma. That's our 
classic immune responsive cancer type, that's where we've seen the greatest results for sure. I tell students this is the Jimmy Carter situation, the immune checkpoint uh, blockade to, to attack melanomas even in the recurrent setting. And ovarian cancer highlighted here with the red arrow is kind of in the middle. And we see clinically about a 10 to 15% response rate, not a durable response when we use immune checkpoint blockade alone in ovarian cancer. So what we want is to try and say, how can we make these ovarian cancers that are in the middle over on the far right? How can we give them more mutations? And the idea is the more mutations the cancer has, the more neoepitopes, like uh, new abnormal proteins that the immune system doesn't respond and is therefore going to attack. So the idea is we give them a PARP inhibitor. It causes DNA damage. This increases those new epitopes that the immune system doesn't recognize and wants to fight and therefore triggers an improved response to immunotherapy. <coughs> so there is some data to suggest that this approach makes sense. Uh, this is a um, paper looking at BRCA1, or homologous recombination deficiency, and the number of neoantigens that we see, and then the, the subsequent clinical outcomes. So if we first look at the left panel, try and get my mouse down there, uh, the blue is HR proficient, so homologous recombination proficient cells. On the left, we have BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations, and on the right, other homologous recombination deficiency. And what you can tell is either of those scenarios where there's an abnormality in homologous recombination, we actually have an increase in the neoantigens. And if we look at survival outcomes, if you have more neoantigens, the red uh, bar here, there's an improved overall survival compared to low neoantigen load. So how can we push these cells one way or the other to homologous recombination deficiency to increase immune responses and increase outcomes? <coughs> this brings us to another schematic about how DNA damage repair happens. So we've been talking about PARP inhibitors and the repair of single-strand breaks. If we have a PARP inhibitor, the single-strand break can't be repaired. It gets pushed over to a double-strand break that is generally repaired by homologous recombination. These are the proteins we've been talking about, BRCA1 and BRCA2, as well, there, as, well as other homologous recombination proteins. And then there is another DNA double-strand break repair pathway that's called non-homologous end joining. And homologous recombination is uh, the idea of using the uh, remaining good copy to make a new copy, to replicate and make that new copy. Uh, in contrast, non-homologous end joining is basically just taking these two free ends on the sides of the DNA double strand break and sticking them back together. They might not match, there might be a chunk missing, we're just going to stick it back together so that that piece is there. And so this is a much lower fidelity approach to fixing DNA double strand breaks. So I'm going to transition to some of the work that we're doing in my laboratory now looking at non-homologous end joining. And the underlying hypothesis is if this is a less good DNA damage repair approach, then maybe it's actually an especially good strategy to trigger immune responses. If we're having a more error-prone, kind of sloppier fixing of the DNA, there are going to be more neoepitopes and maybe immune responses are going to work even better. So the protein we've been studying is a protein called DEC. And uh, it was originally discovered in AML uh, as a translocation protein. And we know that it's overexpressed in multiple cancers as compared to normal tissue. DEC is a good candidate for studying the situation because it regulates chromatin structure and does function in non-homologous end joining. And there's been some work in other cancer types suggesting that uh, 
overexpression of DAC promotes resistance to chemotherapies, including some that we use in ovarian cancer, doxorubicin and etoposide. So the next set of um, slides I'm going to share are about some work we've done first defining that DEC is actually a relevant protein in ovarian cancer. A lot of this work has been done by the postdoc in my lab, Danny Boland, shown at the lower left. And we published this work just at the end of this past year. So first on the upper left is looking at the cancer genome atlas, TCGA, of which ovarian cancer was one of the first uh, tumor types to be sequenced. And we see that there is a statistically significant increase in DEC expression in ovarian cancers as compared to normal controls. On the right is doing DEC immunohistochemistry in a panel of patient samples, uh, tissue microarray from our laboratory. The top two are normal ovarian tissue and the bottom two um, are patients with ovarian cancer. And as you can see, there's an increase in DEC expression in that situation. The model systems that we use in our laboratory are really based on established ovarian cancer cell lines as well as patient-derived ovarian cancer tissues. And so the bottom right is looking at, in our ovarian cancer cell line system, do we see an upregulation of DAC protein? So this is a Western blot uh, looking at protein levels. The far left here is recombinant DEC, just to show that our antibody is working. The second uh, panel is... Uh, hose cells, ovarian surface epithelium cells, so normal ovarian cells. And uh, we see very low levels, and then the next uh, six, seven lines after that are all high-grade serous ovarian cancer cell lines, and we see upregulation of DEC. So this says that DEC is important in ovarian cancer or upregulated in ovarian cancer tissues. We've then gone on to characterize what happens if we take that overexpressed DEC level and decrease it. And so first, just to explain the methodology we're using, um, we're using shRNA or small hairpin RNA uh, methods in which a small RNA is introduced to the cells. What it does is it binds to the transcript for the DEC protein and degrades it so that you don't, or the transcript of the gene, so it degrades it so you don't get protein levels. So this is just verifying that our system is working, uh, the control, and then uh, DEC as well as in combination with some other chemotherapies. I'll show you the second part of that. And what we see is that this SHDEC, small hairpin RNA, is decreasing DEC levels. So when we decrease DEC levels, we see that there's an in increase in the percentage of apoptotic cells as assessed by flow cytometry. So the first is mock here, uh, control versus just decreasing DEC alone. We see an increase in the percentage of apoptotic cells. And then with the addition of chemotherapy, and DEC treatment, we see a further increase in apoptosis. Panabinostat is a histone deacetylase inhibitor that uh, affects uh, chromatin function as well. And so based on some other uh, data, we elected to look at that treatment in combination as well. Furthermore, we want to make sure that if we're saying that DEC is uh, causing DNA damage to induce an immune response, we need to make sure that that's actually happening. So uh, two ways of looking for immune response are gamma H2AX, which is a protein that's exposed on the edges of cut DNA, and RAD51. Sorry, I keep losing the mouse. I could try this way, but we'll see. It's kind of faint, sorry. So gamma H2A and RAD51, and what we see is with the, in, the decrease in DEC levels, again, the shRNA technique, we see an increase in gamma H2A levels, and this is quantified here uh, the most significant finding is with cisplatin in the addition of DEC. We see an increase in gamma H2A foci. 
Finally, and most important in the preclinical setting, is the animal model studies. So this is looking at the influence of decreasing DEC levels in ovarian cancer cells that are then put in mice. Uh, worth highlighting, this is an immunosuppressed mouse model at the moment. And we'll start with panel C, looking at immunohistochemistry to confirm that we are actually decreasing DEC levels. SH control shown here. So this is DEC antibody, and we see a lot of brown staining indicating DEC is expressed. When we add our DEC knockdown, there's no longer DEC expression. And then at the top, tumor growth. The black bars that are growing are the control, and with decreased DEC levels, we have suppression of tumor growth, and as well as final tumor weight at uh, animal sacrifice. So what we've been able to show is that DEC is important in ovarian cancer. It's overexpressed in primary ovarian cancers, and that decreasing DEC levels both increases apoptosis, increases DNA double strand breaks, and decreases tumor growth in animal models. So this leads us to two critical next questions. The first is why? Uh, what's the mechanism underlying this process? And the second is how would we then expand this to a clinical setting? The second question is actually a really hard one. DEC does not have any enzymatic domain that we can target as a like small molecule inhibitor approach. And so what we have decided to do is to try and first answer the how question. How is DEC exerting this effect to see if there is a, uh, a mediator of the effects that we could actually target more easily than DEC itself? And um, I'll show you that progress. So this is the work in progress part. We first performed RNA sequencing analysis. So this is a methodology where we take our ovarian cancer cells and take either normal cells, this is SH control on the left here, or SH DEC. Uh, so knocking them down and do sequencing of the transcripts that exist in those cells and see what the differences are. I don't expect you to actually be able to see anything about this other than to say this set and the set on the right look different. And we'll get back to what those specific differences are in a bit. Interestingly, one of the things we saw when we then say this collection of differences following changes in RNA transcripts, what pathways are changing? And when we look at the pathway analysis, we see two interesting things at the very top there, interferon alpha response, which is about immune signaling, and the inflammatory response. So now we're starting to have an intersection between our non-homologous end-joining protein and immune response. I just want to highlight this work is done from some collaborators at Michigan State University in the bioinformatics group. So type 1 interferon signaling is about the cell's ability to sense that the DNA is abnormal and what it does in response. This happens not just in cancer cells. It happens in response to viral infection, other pathways, abnormal DNA triggering a response to say something's not right in the cell. The immune system should get revved up. So what we have is DNA damage. So then the DNA leaks out of the nucleus into the cytosol, and there's a pathway of Signaling cascades sting as sensors of immune uh, genes, and this results in pro-inflammatory immune induction and the recruitment of immune cells. So in our model system, in order to try and determine if this is actually happening, we've focused on using RT-PCR, looking at the collection of target genes that indicate this cascade is inducing uh, stimulation of pro-inflammatory gene induction. So what we find is that decreasing DEC levels does, in fact, induce this type 1 interferon signaling. At the top here is just a uh, 
correlation plot, again, from the Cancer Genome Atlas. Uh, sorry, it's a little bit small, but uh, DEC is on the x-axis, so increasing DEC going this way, and STING, that sensor of immune response, on the y-axis. And as there's more DEC, this re sensing response is um, blunted. So what we want to do is decrease DEC so that we get an increase in that response. And this is shown at the bottom uh, using uh, RT-PCR methods where we see some of these transcripts saying their signaling of the in, uh, type 1 interferon response goes up when we decrease DEC levels. So what's causing this cascade? And we wanted to determine if there are specific proteins that are mediating this effect that we might be able to better target. So this is in a little more detail now. The left six are SHDEC, decreased DEC levels compared to our controls. And then looking at specific uh, gene transcripts that are changed in the setting of DEC knockdown. And one that came up as being specifically changed is the aurora kinases. It's a little hard to see, but interestingly, right next after that is BRCA2, and we have some other immune-related genes listed also. So aurora kinase are essential regulators of mitosis, and it's all fitting with the story. We're talking about DNA damage repair, chromatin assembly and segregation, uh, spindle assembly, and there is literature to support aurora kinases as being overexpressed in multiple solid tumors and functioning in genome instability. So we wanted to validate that actually decreased DEC is associated with decreased aurora kinase. And can we knock down aurora kinase and get the same phenotypic response as we do with decreased DEC? Again, on the left, this is RT-PCR, showing that if we decrease DEC, we decrease aurora kinase. And then on the right is an example from our primary patient samples. So these are patients that have undergone surgery at our institution. We grow their tumor cells in the laboratory. And what we see is there's a correlation between DEC levels and aurora kinase levels. If they have high DEC, they have a high aurora kinase. And so this is one of the model systems we're working to see if we can improve responses. There's also good rationale to study DEC and, uh, sorry, aurora kinase in ovarian cancer. Uh, we have an example here of uh, outcomes looking at patients who have high aurora kinase levels versus low aurora kinase levels. And the patients with higher levels with the dotted line by immunohistochemistry have poorer outcomes than the patients with lower levels. We also know that aurora kinase can uh, function in non-homologous end joining in ovarian cancer, and there's been limited study uh, in a phase two trial which shows that there have been some responses to aurora kinases in the clinical setting. So we've now gone on to look at what if we use these agents to um, affect our same phenotype that we see in, with DEC. And so this is first, again, looking at apoptosis. We're looking at two different aurora kinase inhibitors. First, alicertib, which specifically targets aurora kinase A, and then tozacertib, which uh, targets A, B, and C. And uh, looking at the percentage of apoptotic cells following therapy in uh, two different ovarian cancer cell lines, and we see induction of apoptosis following aurora kinase inhibitors. Furthermore, the use of these aurora kinase inhibitors causes an increase in interferon 1 signaling. So this is again by RT-PCR looking at the target genes suggesting that that cascade sensing DNA damage is happening and inducing uh, immune type responses. And we see with both inhibitors there's an increase in multiple cell lines of these target genes. 
So now what we really want is to take this data and look at what is the interplay between DEC and Aurora kinase and the immune response. And so one of the challenges in ovarian cancer research and research in general is that the traditional mouse models are in an immunosuppressed setting. And we are really needing to transition to an immunocompetent uh, model systems to understand how the immune system is affecting cancers. This has been a challenge in the ovarian cancer world, and the best we have right now is what's called the ID8 mouse model system. Uh, it's in a immunocompetent mouse, and um, one of the ways it works, you actually generally do intraperitoneal injection of the tumor cells. So it's injected into the abdominal cavity. They float around and stick wherever, which is exactly what happens in ovarian cancer. So you get ascites, you get two, multiple tumor implants. So phenotypically, it's a very good model system. Uh, the big criticism of the model at this time is that it lacks p53 mutations, which is one of the hallmarks of ovarian cancer. And um, people are working, there's some work actually to introduce p53 mutations into this model system. But we are looking in ID8 cells to see what happens when we use Aurora kinase inhibitors on the immune response. First, we did some preclinical work to validate that we're going to see a response. So this is looking at type 1 interferon signaling in the ID8 cells um, with our inhibitors, alicertib and tozacertib. And there's just one other change to this work, which is we're also adding this sting protein that's the sensor of DNA. And we see with the addition of sting, we see an even greater activation. So this suggests that ID8 cells have the potential to activate this pathway in the setting of DNA damage. We've now done some preliminary work looking at uh, the influence of aurora kinase inhibition on immune infiltrates in the cancer cells and looking at the ascites that's collected from these animals. This is one done by our collaborators in tumor immunology at uh, Michigan. And so the ascites is collected for viable cells, and then the immune cells are identified. And then we've been looking at specific immune subsets. Uh, and this is showing just for two examples, T-cell receptor beta and T-cell receptor gamma delta. And the main point I want to make here is that when we treat uh, this mouse model with aurora kinase inhibitors, we see a shift in immune infiltrates at that time. So we're now starting, and I don't have the punchline, uh, work looking at combination of uh, therapy with both alicertib and an immune checkpoint inhibitor, anti-PDL1. So we'll do both treatments alone and then in combination with the hope that alicertib will cause this pathway of immune response leading to uh, increased sensitivity to immune checkpoint blockade. And we plan to look at tumor burden, survival, and immune infiltrates. And I think it's worth just mentioning again, uh, the goal in this setting is to develop sufficient preclinical data to then shift over to the clinical trial setting. So in conclusion, uh, high-grade serous cancer, uh, which our preferred new nomenclature, is an aggressive disease that needs new treatment options. And I really believe that defective DNA damage repair is central to ovarian cancer pathogenesis. And as we understand this preclinical biology, we're really shifting our clinical treatment strategies. And it's a great example of that shift from preclinical basic science research to actual patient care. And I uh, will say that PARP inhibitors have been uh, really changing clinical practice very rapidly. And I think the next step is how can we uh, then improve responses even further with the goal of improvements in overall survival and that perhaps blocking DNA damage repair will improve immunotherapy responses. 
So I'd like to acknowledge my team. Um, this includes one of the gynecologic oncology fellows, uh, Melissa Brackman. Carrie Hacker was also a gynecologic oncology fellow. She's faculty now at NYU uh, and interested in tumor immunology. Uh, Danny Bolin, postdoc. Lee Jun Tan, I was thinking about my talk today. I've known him for probably 20 years now, and he's my lab manager. And then a number of undergrads that work in the laboratory also. And I want to end with this picture because I think it's important for all of us to say at the end of the day, the reason we do this is for patient outcomes. And so this is a picture of me and one of my patients uh, for an uh, effort at the university. And she asked me to come with her after clinic one day to stand in front of that picture. And um, all of the preclinical work is to try and help patients like this. So in closing, my collaborators uh, at the University of Michigan as well as Michigan State University, we can't do it without the patients and families, those who provide tissue samples, those who agree to be on clinical trial, and like I said, those for whom we do our work. Funding sources, uh, interestingly, the Department of Defense has a um, program called the DOD Ovarian Cancer Academy that's really uh, with the effort of drawing people into and maintaining ovarian cancer researchers, as well as some other support from my institution. So I'll end there. I'm happy to take any questions. Yeah, so there have been a number of uh, studies looking at combination therapy, and in general, it's too toxic from a myelosuppressive standpoint. You know, maybe we can adjust the chemo doses so that we don't get there, but um, the toxicity is a limitation. And even we see in single-agent PARP inhibitor therapy, we often have to dose-reduce because of the uh, hematologic side effects. Mm -hmm. And then this BCRA mutation are present in every cell of the body, so why only the ovary and the, the breast? Or what do, do the other organs do for not getting cancer? And then on the same line, shouldn't this platin and PARP inhibition more toxic to people with this uh, mutation? Yeah. So... The first question is uh, regarding why, if uh, people have germline mutations, why, are, um, why do they get site-specific cancers rather than cancers everywhere? And um, there is a lot of discussion in the gynecologic, gynecologic side about um, the hormonal cycling and how that may influence uh, susceptibilities. Um, and so that's one uh, aspect as far as the, the repair cycles that actually occur in those tissues. And then your second question of why wouldn't um, the, I have to think what, uh, the platinum or the uh, platinum or the PARP inhibitors should be more toxic for people who have a different Yeah, they're actually more effective. Are they, not, are they also more toxic? Oh, I don't, I don't think we know that. Or I don't think that's been shown to be the case. Yeah. But why yeah. not? I mean, yeah. isn't that interesting? I mean, there should be more toxic. That's true. I don't know the answer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But that is also the reason, well, I guess I would say the caveat is they are more toxic uh, in the hematologic cells, and that's why they get leukemias, is because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm curious about the, uh, was it in DEC inhibition that you got the type 1 interferon? Yes. And the uh, enhanced immune responses. 
the new engines that come up, are there any candidates for vaccines? Yeah, this is a, a great question. And um, so we have not yet done uh, like uh, mutational sequencing T cell receptor uh, to specifically look at what the neoantigens are. Uh, overall, vaccine-based therapy has not shown great success in ovarian cancer. Um, our clinical marker for ovarian cancer is generally CA125 protein, and so there were strategies in the past to do vaccines targeting CA125 as a specific tumor and um, overall didn't show clinical efficacy. I think one of my cautions is I'm not sure that we will by inhibiting DNA damage repair, we're going to see a different repertoire of neoantigens on different patients. And so whether there would be a specific enough change that that could be targeted with a vaccine strategy in a broader way. There are patient-specific vaccine trials um, that are currently underway, though, to try and target their tumors specifically based on neoantigens. Mm -hmm. Could you share with us a little bit about how you do shared decision-making with your patients to present PARP inhibitor therapy, uh, given what you've presented on that today? Uh, that's a great question, and I think that, um, I think as clinicians, we sometimes uh, struggle with trying to lay all the options out on the table and expect a patient to have the knowledge and the expertise to be able to make a decision. And I think that there is... Uh, I think that the shared part of shared decision-making really has to be there on both sides, that we know what they're valuing, but we also have to give some guidance once we hear that part. And so there will be patients for whom taking a pill every day and having that constant reminder that they have cancer and it's likely to come back at some point is really uh, adversely affecting their quality of life. You know, they say, I, I don't want to have that reminder every day. And... I don't want to have nausea every single day when I wake up. And um, so I think it's about talking about what their values are and how we can meet those with our treatment options. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, this was a wonderful example of taking bench to bedside, and uh, we really have been delighted to have you with Thank us Thank you. Today. My Thank pleasure. You.